there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, Dr. Batar, the word denialism is a butt-ugly word, but it applies to the CDC, not to the people who are claiming that vaccines are related somehow, directly, indirectly, or all of the above, to, to autism. But CDC has just come out with new stats, and they're saying the figures, percentages, whatever it is, up 15% in terms of the diagnoses of children with autism. Yet no mention, no mention anywhere that vaccines have anything to do with it. In fact, if anything is mentioned about vaccines, it's immediately a conspiracy theory among parents who don't know their own children. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing fact that people can actually believe this. It's almost like sticking your head in the sand and saying, I don't hear it, I don't see it, I don't you know, smell it, whatever the case is, and then just denying it. Now, I... The problem that I have is, what's that term that you use? You call it um, uh, plausible deniability, right? Right, yeah, the two, two words together where they, they have some reasonable uh, way of saying, well, it can't be the vaccine, or it isn't the vaccine. They basically say, we don't know what causes it. But if you bring up vaccines, they're certain that that isn't the cause. Exactly. And, and the fact that the, the incidence of autism is going up, and then you can correlate that with, the incidence of vaccinations, the incidence of flu vaccines being given, the incidence of childhood vaccines being stacked upon each other, uh, you know, first day on the planet. And looking at the change in, in the frequency of vaccinations and change in the schedules of these childhood diseases, supposedly that have to be now stamped out according to, uh, what was it, the 1991 National Vaccine Initiative when they said they would mm-hmm. stamp out all childhood diseases. So you start looking at that incidence of autism versus the incidence of giving vaccinations and you see the one in 10,000 in 1991 versus whatever it is now mm-hmm. one in what is it must be under one in 30 right Robert because of well their their official stats are now saying it's one in 59 but I, I believe it to be much higher when you can take into consideration the entire spectrum which can be from mild to Asperger's high functioning as they call it to the total debilitating uh, scenario and, you know, as we, as we say reporting here when we talk, and we've talked to many moms, met many moms over the years, parents of these vaccine-injured children, and, of course, you have seen them as a physician who have been brought to you. So many, so many you've been able to help reverse the, the uh, manifestation of it. And without fail, you've seen what's in a vaccine ends up in the child, and that is the direct, if not outright, sole contributor. It's the, it's the vaccine straw ingredients that breaks the child's back, so to speak. That's exactly right. And so it's uh, accumulation not only of what's in the child, but also what's in the mother and what the mother was feeding the child basically while in utero, meaning what the mother's state of health was and the mother's toxicity level was and how that was being shunted to the baby via the placenta. And then once the baby's born, the the load in the mother 
um, being transferred to the baby through the uh, maternal milk that mm-hmm. uh, that the child is um, essentially existing on for the first few months of life, assuming that they're breastfeeding. And then on top of that, then the onslaught of the childhood vaccinations that are given on the first day on the planet. And so it's the proverbial, as you said, the straw that broke the camel's back. And it's an accumulation type aspect. It's not a one particular uh, source. But obviously, when mercury is so neurotoxic, and in fact, the only substance that's known to man that causes the denudation of the neurofibrils, and then you add to that the maternal amalgam load and the environmental mercury um, burden that the, that the parents have, that the mother has, and according to the Centers for Disease Control, the Anhanes data that was released in 2003, that one out of six women of childbearing age in the United States was mercury toxic. So now you start looking at this incidence of toxicity, um, and now on top of all that, you start giving them vaccinations that have thimerosal, which is ethylmercury, which is a lot more similar within the system. So you've just got an accumulation of mercury from all these different sources. And many people still to this day ask me, well, it's not just mercury. And I'm saying, no, it is a mercury. There are many other things that contribute to it. But it's like once the spark, i.e. mercury, causes the fire that destroys the forest, mm-hmm. yes, then you've got other issues that you have to deal with. But it's the spark that caused the fire that I'm most interested in because that's what's going to reverse it. That If I can remove the mercury now, you can, you know, not necessarily reverse the damage, but you can certainly have an opportunity now to reseed uh, the forest with new plants, right. and hopefully those plants will grow into trees, et cetera, et cetera, and recreate the ecology. But the bottom line is that the offending substance is mercury by far, and everything else is secondary or tertiary. Yeah. Dr. Batar, you mentioned the two words together, plausible deniability. I want to come back to that, because one of the ways they get away with this, not, not for us, but for the media, general public that doesn't know, They'll say, well, if it were the cause, then every vaccine would cause everybody to have autism. But that is only possible in a world where uh, medical collectivism is your mantra, is your dogma, is your religion. That you believe that there is no such thing as bio-individuality. That there is no such thing as different uh, abilities to methylate, for instance, mercury or other other substances, that there are no strengths or or weaknesses different from child to child, adult to adult. And in that world, they can say, well, because it doesn't happen every time the kid gets a shot, then it it can't be the cause of it any of the times. Right. So you've got genetic predispositions and you've got uh, biological individuality. These are aspects that allow every individual to respond differently to every type of trigger whether it be internal environment, external environment, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And so this po- point that you're bringing up, it's very interesting because in medicine itself, they say that the two terms always and never are never correct. Okay, always, if you use the word always in medicine, although you use the word n- never in medicine, those are never correct. There's always exceptions to the rule. This is what conventional medicine preaches, and yet, what you're saying is that's exactly what they're doing. They're going against that and saying that every vaccine would cause this, which we know in medicine always and never is never accurate. However, having said that, in autism, mercury is always the issue. I've never found it not to be the issue. Even when I've started doubting that it was mercury because I've treated a child for two and a half years and there's no mercury that came out and they don't have that much toxic levels and they're, they're just, you know, I remember this particular child, Rishiban from, from the U.K., and I won't say the last name, obviously, but it, this child was... So uh, the levels were so low, and we treated the child for two and a half years, and then we were getting ready to start him on the uh, autism, on the autism recovery protocol, which is never 
something that we do until at least a year and a half of having to remove the heavy metals because the mm-hmm. the recovery protocol includes hyperbarics and hyperbaric oxygen is increasing oxidation if you've got metals on you know present because you're going from 21 percent oxygen normal environment to 100 percent oxygen um, in in the chamber so you don't want to do hyperbarics on a child that has mercury to- or any kind of metal toxicity because you're just going to increase the oxidative stress by fivefold and so we waited and in two and a half years and no metals coming out and we get ready to start that recovery protocol and said let, let me just do one more heavy metal challenge. And Dad says, comes in and says, Dr. Truck, can we just do one more heavy metal challenge? I said, sure. We do this, and we get a mercury level of uh, something like 47 micrograms per gram creatinine, which is more than, you know, 15 times the toxic level. And then we, and the lead was like over 100 and, 100 and some, 100, 130, 140. And I thought, it's got to be lab error. So we repeated the test, and the mercury came out to 87 micrograms per gram creatinine, and the lead was over 240 micro, micrograms per gram creatinine. So the, the repeat test to make sure that it wasn't an error showed mm-hmm. that even doubling of the uh, previous uh, test. And what that shows is it took two and a half years to get this child's pathways going to the point that we were actually able to measure the metals coming out. So even the one time or two times that I have thought that maybe I was wrong and maybe there is some other reason, I was wrong. It ended up being that it was just the fact that how far am I going to continue with that thought process? Am I going to fall off? and say after six months or a year, a year and a half, and say, no, I must be wrong because there's no metals going on. You know what? If I hadn't continued, Robert, I would have thought that maybe I was wrong, but it took that two and a half years and and one or two children before we started seeing the metals coming out. So it is always the offending substance. It is after we started removing the metals, we saw the metals coming out that the child actually started to put a couple of words together, was no longer running out in the middle of the road, no longer had to wear a helmet to keep himself from hurting himself by, you know, hitting his head in the wall. there's, there's a whole cascade of this, but it's in this particular instance, in autism, mercury is the offending substance, and nobody has ever been able to show me any fallacy, with, uh, any, any incorrectness with my thought process, because I can show them case after case, over 8 million data points now showing mercury being the issue, whether it be hair, mm-hmm. fecal, urine, or RBC levels, somewhere it's mercury, and we can start seeing it coming out. Yes. Otherwise, vaccine is the leading cause of coincidence on planet Earth, right? That's what yeah. you have to believe. Yeah. Uh, Officer Hayes says what doctors call correlation is not causation. Law enforcement calls circumstantial evidence and the beginning of an investigation. Modern yeah. medicine dismisses correlation and says it means nothing, especially if they're told to say it means nothing. Now, that's yeah, why I, think- I said... Go ahead, Dr. Batar. I was just going to insult doctors, but you, you beat me to it. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that the thing is, I believe that they do know, Robert. I believe that their only defense now is to play the game of taking their head in the sand and saying, oh, there's, right. there's no causation here. There's no association. This is all conspiracy theory. Because denial, the, the deniability aspect is the only thing that they've got left. Because I've said this many, many times, and we haven't talked about it recently in the last few years, but you remember when we mm-hmm. first started doing the radio show, I told you that if the American population, if the world's population knew the truth, and they knew that the people that are sitting at the helm actually know the truth, this would be enough to create the next civil war, the next world war. Sure. Because people would erupt in absolute the, the most, um, you know, it would be, I mean, just imagine what you would do or what I would do if we find out that our children were being maimed by our own government that's sitting there trying to protect, supposedly protecting our children. It would because be the next Nuremberg trials because all doctors have impressed me in what they can do. Again, this is a bit of a collectivist statement, so take it with a grain. But as a group, 
they follow orders better than just about any other group. And then they claim I was just following orders better than any other group. The vaccine issue, Nuremberg put the two together and they're still going to be responsible despite the 1986 Vaccine Injury Childhood Camp Compensation Program, which relieved them of liability as it did to the pharmaceutical vaccine manufacturers as well. We got more news about the HPV vaccine victims. And we also have some questions of the day related to neurological type diseases. We're going to get to those here on Advanced Medicine on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Dr. Rashid Batar. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. information is so good it requires no expiration date the robert scott Scott bell show two hours a day six days a week here on gcn the home of the robert scott bell show uh you can hear it later on itunes stitcher tune in uk health radio and soundcloud and medical rewind at advancedmedicine.com where a searchable form of all of our archives hundreds hundreds and hundreds of hours over a thousand hours available to you for free. Awesome. By the way, if you look over my left shoulder, those of you watching on YouTube, you'll see the book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, Dr. Batar's international bestseller. If you're new to the show, new to Dr. Batar, there's your starting point. It's as amazing as the day it was written. Every time you read it, you're going to learn something new. It is profound. It is moving. Now, speaking of moving, how about let's move in, let's move off the HPV fear uh, bandwagon. Human papillomavirus, which is it's almost, a, you know, all these herpetic virus, different things, a lot of ubiquitous viruses in, you know, humanity and in the animal kingdom as well. The HPV is acknowledged that if you acquire it, you will, a woman that has this even on the cervix, that within a couple of years, just a normally functioning immune system will neutralize this thing before it ever becomes a problem. Years later, this is how they, they claim that it caused cancer. They, they scraped some cervical cells, some cancer cells, and they found genetic fragments that indicated at some point in history there had been an HPV infection. And from that, they said, that's the cause of cervical cancer. Well, it's not the cause of cervical cancer. There's no proof. There's no evidence that it is, in fact. And, and, uh, Daniel, see if you can get Dr. Batar reconnected. It sounds like we, we may have lost him, uh, Daniel, and super done. Yeah. Uh, but so what I'm saying here is that you've got a whole world built up around HPV causing cancer, and therefore we need Gardasil and Cervix. Ignore the fact that many children, girls especially, are being devastated by these vaccines. Infertility, paralysis, Guillaume-Barre, death even. And you've got five countries coming together meeting on this HPV vaccine victims. Japan, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Colombia, and Spain all meeting on this. Now, having said all that, the fact that HPV doesn't cause cervical cancer, and we can accelerate the clearing of it with silver and other immunomodulators, the devastation that is occurring to these young people because of the fear of, you know, a fictitious cause of cervical cancer, Dr. Batar, it's amazing what they can conjure up to sell us through fear on another shot. Yeah, basically, it's all fear... Um, mongering. It's mm-hmm. it really all, when you start looking at modern medicine, it's not just the vaccines, Robert, it's really all 
modern medicine therapeutics are at some point fear-mongering is utilized. Radiation therapy and cancer, chemotherapy and cancer, uh, some of the drug therapies that are uh, required for cardiovascular disease, uh, mm-hmm. some of these very, very invasive procedures that have a very high instance of uh, morbidity. Uh, so you've got like things such as uh, percutaneous transdermal coronary angioplasties that have a 3 to 5% mortality rate. So you have people that, you know, out of 100 people that have this procedure, depending on what part of the country you're in, Three out of 100 will die during the process. Now, of course, the defense is, well, these people already had a problem with blockage, and so, you know, they were going to die anyway. But, you know, there's other things that can be done where you don't have a three out of 100 chance of dying from the procedure. But fear-mongering is what does it. The, the, the use of some of these substances that have a lot of danger to them. I mean, vaccines is just one part of it, but fear-mongering is utilized almost like there's a modus operandi, you know, maybe something was written in those original 110-year-old plans about the new um, medical education system, and there they said we will use fear-mongering to get people to start using our our uh, therapeutics. Well, isn't it ironic, know. Dr. Batar, that they've used this against you, against uh, our buddy Ty Bollinger, for instance, when we point out the dangers of vaccines or chemotherapy and radiation? We're the ones who are now fear-mongering. Yet there's more evidence to support the danger of that than the danger of the disease they say they're going to prevent or treat. Exactly. That's exactly right. With a vaccine, for example, or the flu, for example, to, to put people in harm's way for the potential of, of trying to prevent a self-limiting condition anyway, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I would wonder... If somebody could go back into the archives and look at the original Flexner report, I wonder what the fear bombing was actually part or parcel of. I'm sure it was. They probably didn't write it down. Yeah. But I, I, I'm curious whether fear bombing was part of the agenda. Like, well, like, there was there's historical out. documents uh, that did acknowledge strategies, including attacking doctors and making examples out of them. That was part of this. And so that frightened the doctors into line. But they've been less successful over recent years of frightening us and the average folks out there into quieting down about the danger of vaccines, much less the danger of cancer treatments approved by government. We'll be back. Live around the world. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell. Robert Scott, the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, remember, advancedmedicine.com. We got a special code if you want to sign up and get access to all the wonderful things uh, that you can do there. 1358 is the code. If you're not sure, go to robertscottbell.com. Scroll down in the show notes of today with Advanced Medicine, Dr. Batar. You'll see the picture of us there. And uh, you can plug into that. Again, medicalrewind.com is also available. There's so much history here in the years we've been together dr batar uh you could probably write a hundred books with all the things we've been talking about uh but again searchable uh that's the thing we haven't been able to do and your you guys are work your team's working on that still actually um it's already done robert the thing is mm-hmm. it's not live yet um because some of the things still need to be brought over uh but yeah it's it's actually functioning and i can um tell you off the air i'll give you the link to go and so you can experiment with it but yeah okay. it's pretty much Very done I'm, I'm hoping that in another 
another week. We are going to be doing a, a pretty exciting launch uh, on a webinar for a new protocol, and we can talk about that. I don't want to throw off All right. uh, our No worries. we got some exciting we things with. happening. Yeah. Yes. All right. Stand by for that, folks. You keep plugging into the Robert Scott Bell Show and Advanced Medicine with Dr. Bittar. Right now, we're going to plug into you, our, our lovable and humble listeners. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. All right. This question comes from Officer Hayes. I have a question for Robert and Dr. Bittar about upper motor neuron lesion. At 18 months, he says his son received the MMR, V, Hep B, and Tdap vaccine. He lost speech, started stemming, toe walking, repeatedly failed the Babinski test shown to me by a friend who studied kinesiology. He said failure is a sign of uh, about upper motor neuron lesion. I knew heavy metals from vaccines were likely the cause. I spent the last two years listening to every lecture given by Boyd Haley on the topic of mercury and glutathione and every lecture by Suzanne, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys on aluminum. So I started studying homeopathic remedies on my own. Almost the last two years, I've spent giving my son daily plant-based selenium in his applesauce, horsetail tea to drink for silica with a shot of DMSO for sulfur, nation iodine, Bravo probiotic yogurt, suppositories and baths with Epsom salts and MSM to absorb magnesium and sulfur through his skin. My son is now three and a half. He speaks again, no longer stems, and uh, he still is toe walking. So what can I do to address the toe walking? Is the neuron lesion permanent? When I tell him to walk heel to toe, and he does it with no problem, but he goes back to toe walking after a while. Is this a lesion issue or breaking a bad habit issue now? Wow, this is a fantastic question. A lot of things that uh, Officer Hayes has done here, Dr. Batar. Yeah, so basically the short uh, answer to this is it is a habit issue. Um, the fact that he's no longer stemming shows that that part has already been taken care of. And, you know, he may still have some residual um components that need to be still removed. So I wouldn't stop doing what you're doing. I think that those things have obviously helped, uh, but there is a, it's a habit issue too. And um, it, it's, it's definitely not a lesion issue. Let's just put it that way. There could be some remnant toxicity, and that's causing some issues there, but it's not. there's no lesion here per se, uh, meaning that when you think of a lesion, you think of actually some type of... Um, something that's been divided or something that's like a mass effect caused by some type of uh, growth or you talk you're thinking about a, a specific lesion and a specific point you don't talk about uh this type of issue which is a generalized issue those are not lesion issues does, does that make sense robert what i'm saying yeah yeah no i, I think so and and obviously we're not doing a, a brain scan on radio here that's not what we're saying but if we talk about manifestations of certain patterns of behavior the transitions that happen as as officer hayes is describing in his son uh we can come to some conclusions we still you know check it out however you need to validate or confirm it but we want to give in information so you can make better informed decisions about your next steps which is, you know, why he was asking the question. Right. And so from a general standpoint, when you're dealing with these type of uh, things and there's an improvement in certain parameters, but not in all parameters, that just means that you need to do more of it. And there is a behavioral aspect that you'll have to work on. And um, there's there's good evidence that you should continue doing what you're doing. Um, that's that's not to say that not something else could develop, but generally speaking, when it's like this, it is not a specific lesion and a, you know, and a specific neurological pathway that you have to worry about. Well, and you've also talked about uh, altering behavior patterns in these children that are fully in the spectrum or, or moving their way out of it. 
how you you talked about rewarding the positive behavior instead of being uh, angry at the bad behavior. I remember you've, exactly. you've said this many times yeah. that parents need to learn this. Yes, yeah, so, so rewarding desired behavior, and and how do we do that? It's children tend to um, manipulate their environment, and they because children that are on the autism spectrum disorder are far more intelligent than their peer group. They happen to have much better ability to manipulate their parents, and they can do that. Um, you know, with many, many different aspects. It's, it's so amazing that when you watch a child, and I'm talking to the parent, I'm telling the parent what the child's going to do, and now the child does it. And you can see, you know, first I throw the temper tantrum, and I tell the parents, you got to stay strong, you got to stay strong. Child will then start running around and, you know, hitting things and pulling the parent's hair. No, won't do anything to me or anybody else, but just doing it to the mom. I'm saying, you got to stay strong. Mom's ignoring it. And then the child will sit down and get quiet and, and say, now you want to reward him, give him some attention. Then the child will act out again. And it's almost like you can see them, though, that they're, they're, they're looking around. They're trying to think, okay, so I've figured this out. I've tried the crying. I've, tr- I've tried the temper tantrum. It hasn't worked. Hmm. What should I do? Then they're quiet, and you reward them. And now they're happy. They're getting what they want. And then they're thinking. And I'm t- I'll tell the parent, now watch. They're going to retest the hypothesis that they've made. So mm-hmm. you're going to watch them do something else. So they're looking at the parent, and they'll do something that they know they're not supposed to do, but they want to see, is this going to create, am I going to get the desired response? And I tell the parent, ignore it. So the, you know, the child will do it, parent ignores it, the child figures out, okay, so I can't do this. And they will push you to the limit. It comes down to who's got more endurance. Does the child have more endurance to throw the temper tantrum, or is the parent that got more endurance to deal with the temper tantrum and ignore it till the child settles down and then have the opportunity to reward them for the desired behavior of being quiet? So in this yeah. particular case with uh, with the child that's doing the toe walking, it's probably not that type of a habit where they're trying to manipulate the situation. But, again, if the child's formed a habit of doing that, and it's just going to take some more time. And there could be still some, uh, like I said, some remnant toxicity issues going on. So maybe continuing to do this this uh, the process that the, the Officer Hayes is doing, sure. I would still Different continue doing it because it's obviously helped. And, and yeah. I wouldn't stop that. And maybe just she needs a, you know, more duration, but keep it going. All right, fantastic. Let's move on to Robin's question. She says, I, I think it's a she, I'm not sure. Uh, let's see, my 49-year-old friend is starting to develop tremors, decreased sense of smell, difficulty swallowing. He has sadly been taking prescribed methylphenidate, PMP, that's Ritalin, and lorazepam for nearly 20 years. 20 years. He has had a heavy caffeine use historically, drinking two to three quarts of black coffee. I think that even puts Super Don to shame. He says, though, at least it's organic each day. And he used to smoke a pack of cigarettes daily, quit 10 years ago. He had all of his amalgam fillings removed in the spring of 2016. So that's about two, two years ago. Uh, takes the follow- he, he talks about supplements, magnesium, turmeric, krill, probiotics, iodine, choline, melatonin, ga- ga- uh, adrenal support, silica, uh, selenium a little bit, chromium a little bit. I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff he's trying to do, prostate, valerian, but he stopped taking any OTC pharmaceuticals, including ibuprofen. That's a contributing factor, and is attempting to taper off of methylphenidate and then the lorazepam. It's a long, painful process. He eats organic, filters water, and uh, has had no vaccines for the last 10 years in Vermont. Wondering if either me or Dr. Batar has anyone you could recommend in Vermont that could maybe work more closely with him or have any ideas to prevent what appears to be Parkinson's developing? Well, um, Robert, I, you might have somebody. I don't have anybody I could recommend or refer. Um, In Vermont, I don't know. That's the thing. You know, we try to get them plugged into some of the better organizations that have conscious doctors, at least integrative that will do 
uh, IV chelation therapies appropriately. I mean, we've talked about advanced medicine docs, but they're not everywhere, unfortunately. Um, there's ACAM, there was AAEM, and there's other groups, but I, I don't know definitively someone in Vermont. Yeah, well, see, the problem is uh, some of these type of questions, too, you could send them to a doctor that uh, does chelation, um, and I don't know, uh, the process of chelation may or may not help this individual, but you see, there's this is a Parkinsonian-type picture that's developing. So let's talk generally. Again, we can't diagnose sure. somebody over the radio, or but you start looking at the history over here. So the first thing is being on... Um, those two drugs, right? Mm-hmm. The Ritalin and, and the Right. And your Ritalin is not a benign drug, mm-hmm. as you know. Um, and being on that for 20 years, that's going to cause some serious problems. And then you've got, on top of that, the um, two to three quarts of black coffee. And then on top of that, you have smoking. So, so the bottom line here is that we're talking about chelation is going to remove heavy metals. But chelation is not going to get rid of the other crap that's in mm-hmm. the system. And this is basically an intracellular issue. So there's a lot of garbage in all humans. And the longer we've been on this planet, the more garbage we accumulate. And so to have these pathways that open up and to help, you know, the reason we take nutrition, the reason we try to do the detoxes is to help to decrease the intracellular garbage that we all have. Right. Now, there's three ways that the body deals with garbage. Okay, so we, we know of the most common one, which is necrosis, um, basically um, the white blood cells go in and they eat the macrophage activity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've got also apoptosis. Apoptosis is programmed cellular death where his cell goes so awry. This is typically seen an example of this would be, say, cancer. Uh, so we have a suppression of apoptosis in cancer. That's why um, the cancer cells can start to run amok and grow so quickly. But the right. normal process of apoptosis is to deal with a cell that is so damaged so much garbage in it that it causes it to self-destruct to protect it to protect the whole. It sacrifices itself to protect the whole. So that's the second form of dealing with garbage, the apoptosis. And in cancer, we see a suppression of that. We want apoptosis to be high because if it is high, then all those abnormal cells would self-destruct. And you wouldn't have to deal with anything. Right. So that's the second process. And then the third one is autophagy. And autophagy is the subject that I gave my lecture on at the Best Answer of Cancers last spring in April of 2008. 17, Robert, where you and I were together, and we were talking about um, how autophagy works. And autophagy is basically self-digestion, and it's actually one of the most effective ways of increasing lifespan. And the way you increase autophagy or you improve autophagy, things such as exercise, uh, fasting, caloric Mm -hmm. restriction, these are all natural ways of dealing with autophagy. Now, we also talked about one of the things that um, we're doing, one of the protocols we use for autophagy, and there's some more things that I have uh, put together in the last two years that also will help to stimulate autophagy. The cheapest way is exercise, fast, caloric restriction. Um, but sometimes there are other things we can do to enhance that, and that's mm-hmm. what we need to focus in on with this individual, with Parkinsonian okay. type thing. If we can do the autophagy, we also, we're get a difference. For Robin, if you want to tell your friend about CBD, cannabidiol, protecting the nervous system and re- regenerating it, as well as silicon, silica, the whole food form, critical for repairing and rebuilding and regenerating neural tissue. Folks, we got one more segment to go. We're going to ask about how do you know if your doctor knows anything about nutrition. Who'd you say that masked man was? It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Robert Scott Bell. Here I come to save the day.
Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, Super Don says he uh, updated the website, the show notes. So if you want to attend the lecture by me and Dr. Gerald Joffrey in New York City on May 5th, you can do that. But uh, the, the sign-up sheet is there. Get there because there's only 50 slots. Uh, Dr. Batar says upcoming there will be another webinar. We'll get you the heads up the moment it's available for all y'all, whether it's the day we're doing advanced medicine or not. Now, Dr. Batar, real quick, you had mentioned three things before we went to break. Uh, autophagy, which is a cool word. I love that word. Autophagy, necrosis, and apoptosis. And can you tie it all together simply in terms of how this relates to optimal health as opposed to just barely surviving and limping along? Uh, that's a great question, Robert. So basically, all those three components, which is the three ways that the body gets rid of garbage, uh, the more garbage you can get rid of, then the better your health is going to be. So this garbage, getting rid of this garbage, we're basically talking about detoxification. We're talking about intracellular detoxification. So if we can optimize necrosis, apoptosis, and um, autophagy, then we are actually improving the individual's ability to get rid of the things that they don't need and, of course, everybody talks about the supplementation aspect, so we don't need to really even talk that much about it. But if we can get rid of the stuff that we don't need, put back the things that we do need, we are no longer going to be limping along. We are going to reach nice. optimum health. Well done. All right, folks, we're going to go on to this final story of the day. How much does your doctor actually know about nutrition? Right? They all say, eat more fruits and vegetables, cut down on sweets and processed foods, don't smoke, increase your fish, right? But, you know, that's just like... It's sort of pablum. It's like, yeah, anybody could say that, but do they really know? It's kind of like, Dr. Patar, remember one of my litmus questions for a doctor to know if they're, they're worth your, you know, going to see and consult with? Ask them how often they have a bowel movement. How often do you poop? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if they're offended, find another doctor. If they go, oh, I'm glad you asked that. This is really because you're engaged and you know, you know why that's important. But I don't know. Is there a, a dietary question? Can we ask a doctor, like, uh, should you be taking selenium when you're on chemotherapy? I mean, that could be one question you could I mean, that's an extreme question, but I don't know what litmus question we can ask a doctor to know right, right then and there. Well, I think that the selenium question, I would not agree with that because, again, you know, somebody, if somebody were to ask me that, you know, I would say, well, it all depends, you know, what their heavy metal profile shows and their essential minerals shows and, and in what vector it does it show. And I don't just put people on selenium, but yet generally speaking, most of those people that are on, uh, that are have cancer, that are dealing with the, uh, a chemo type thing, they are going to be mineral deficient across the board, and selenium is one of them. They're probably going to have a thing to copper ratio this often. So I don't know whether I necessarily agree with that. I think I agree with the first question. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. You know, how often do you go to the bathroom? Um, mm-hmm. I think it, I think that same question, if a doctor says, well, ideally you should be going to the bathroom as many times as you eat, but, you know, I'm not going as often because I still am working on my own health, or I'm not going as often, or I'm going, too, I'm going more than that because I'm you know, Doing whatever the case is. or something, who knows, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so I think I like that kind of question because it does show that you're thinking more physiologically, the doctor's thinking more physiologically now as opposed to not thinking physiologically. Right, um, right. But, yeah, I, I don't know whether there is a magic bullet type question. I think that more important is how the doctor connects with you, but you're right. The question is, how do you know whether your doctor knows much about nutrition? So. I don't know. You, you got a good. Is that a rhetorical question? You it it is a little bit. I mean, I'm thinking about it. It's like on the spot thinking about it. Maybe if somebody has a, a smart way of, of kind of like because you want to know, you want to qualify your doctor. Sure, they have a medical degree. They might have specialty in certain things, but you know, you also want to know: do they know the basics? Because if all they know is their specialty, it's like 
their specialty is disconnected from the rest of you. And it becomes so specialized that you could, like, you know, the toe doctor doesn't know what the skeletal doctor is doing. For, you know, it's, it's that kind of concept. Everything's connected to everything. And you want to have someone that's rounded well enough, even if they have a specialty, that they don't forget you're the sum of your parts. You're not your parts. Yeah, that's a very good point. So people forget that the hip bone's connected to the knee bone that's connected <laughs> to the ankle bone type of thing, right? So we are all connected, and, and uh, having somebody that's so focused on one part of the body and not realizing the impact they're going to have in other part, aspects of the body by intervening, by in, introducing a treatment, mm-hmm. that, that can be an issue. Yeah, I agree with you there. Beautifully, beautiful. All right, so we'll leave it at that. We've got upcoming events. Like I said, Dr. Batar says there'll be a, a webinar coming up. We'll let you know. Uh, we've got the searchable database of Medical Rewind, what was it there? It's going to be at advancedmedicine.com, so you can go back to all of the Advanced Medicine shows that Dr. Batar and I have done together. I'm very excited about that. I will check it out as well. Upcoming events in the show notes. Folks, Curacao, August 5th through the 11th, around the world. You want to come to Curacao? I'll be there. We'll be doing a week-long healing retreat as well. But for now, we got to sign off because we're just out of time, Dr. Batar. And uh, I'm going to give you a little extra time so you can roll with this uh, last message of the week for you. Okay. So you want me to give them the message? Let's let's let them have it. Okay. The power to heal is unequivocally yours. Nicely done. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Robert Scott Bell Show.